0: On this episode of Blue 58, Matt Lafleur is doing some actual head coach things, and we got a chance this week to get to know his staff a little bit. What do the first impressions show? Then, why I think two linebackers are a good explainer for why the Packers roster was the way it was in 2018. And finally, we dive back into our look at the 2018 season. Blue 58! Hello, and welcome back to Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here once again. And we've got some actual news out of Green Bay to talk about this week as we plod through this offseason. Take heart, it's almost the end of February, and that means things are starting to turn a little bit. For us, that means a chance to hear from the new coaching staff of the Green Bay Packers. When we last heard from a Packers coach, it was Matt LaFleur at his introductory press conference. Now we get the chance to actually hear from him having done some duties as the head coach namely hiring a bunch of other coaches. It was good, I think, to hear everybody talk. Matt Lafleur sounded a little bit less nervous this time. The energy level was good. It seems like there's some good thoughts coming from these coaches. Sean Menenga in particular stood out to me. Uh, Maybe that's just by contrast to how Ron Zook appeared to approach special teams. Menenga seems really process-oriented. He seems like he's got a plan for everything. He seems really focused on not screwing up tiny little details, and he seems to recognize the challenge of working with what amounts to the bottom third of the roster. That really stuck out to me from all the people who talked. He seemed very on top of things. Unfortunately, I think that's about all that we can say. You got a good feel for these guys, but I don't know if there's anything else that you can really take away from this news conference. News conference is First, it's February. I know we're almost to the end, but it's still February. Nothing any football coach says in February should be taken seriously at all. Mike McCarthy made a bunch of big offseason proclamations almost every single offseason, and in September, things were almost always different from what he said in the offseason. He talked about running the ball. He talked about defense. He talked about using tight ends. It never seemed to really take effect. So you got to be careful Taking things too seriously, which is why I'm a little bit amused by everyone seemingly taking Lafleur 100% at his word when he talks about running the ball more. Okay, maybe he will. It'd be hard to run the ball less than Mike McCarthy did, to be less committed to the run than Mike McCarthy was, but, 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 we still don't know a whole lot about how Lafleur is going to operate this entire thing when he's really in control and Nathaniel Hackett's going to have an influence on that, and personnel too. So we'll see. Hold off on that a little bit. Second, though, it's it's so hard to draw anything out of this because nobody knows how this is supposed to go. If people knew how to assemble a coaching staff, we'd have a better idea why all these teams throughout the NFL need coaching staffs in the first place, we depending it on one particular thing. On uh, this, they didn't do this. You're supposed to do this. That didn't didn't go correctly. There is no one blueprint here. There's not even like one of three blueprints that you can pick up pick from. Everybody's kind of making this up as they go along. Are there better things to do? Sure, probably. But football, just being the way it is, is in a constant state of flux. So to say, ah, they're too young, ah, they're too old, they don't have enough experience, They've, they're have they too rooted in old ways, whatever, I think is a little bit misguided. And as much as I love his writing, I think we have to use Tom Silverstein as an example here. He wrote a piece that came out this week talking about the relative inexperience on Lafleur's staff. He writes in that piece, quote, At just 39 years old, Lafleur is part of a league trend towards younger, more innovative head coaches. Not surprisingly, he has assembled a young group to assist assist him, in part because he hasn't been around long enough to have longtime associates to bring with him. This offensive group is very young. It will feature four coaches who have never coached a position in the NFL and another who did it only on an interim basis. Though there are 36 years of experience, only 16 of them include work as a primary position coach and only six were a coordinator, end quote. Now that's true, there is some inexperience there. It's not necessarily true to say four coaches who have never coached a position in the NFL. A couple of those guys have been around in in position-specific things. You can toy around with the assistant whatever label um, or, you know, quality control type stuff. These guys have been in NFL buildings before. There is some experience there. And secondly, that point would sound a lot better had he not started his article by saying this, quote, When comparing the combined years of NFL coaching experience New Green Bay Packers coach Matt LaFleur has on his nine-man offensive staff, it doesn't differ that much from what Mike McCarthy and Mike Holmgren, the last two Packers coaches to win Super Bowls, had assembled at the start of their tenure. All told, there is 38 years of NFL experience on the offensive staff. When Holmgren began in 1992, his had a combined 30 years. And when McCarthy began in 2006, his had 42 years. End quote. I guess what I'm trying to say here, or point out, is that... Pulling the years is not necessarily an indication of quality. And I bet if you drill down, you probably would find some substantive differences between the coaches each of those three men hired: LaFleur, Mike Sherman, and or Mike Holmgren, and Mike McCarthy, excuse me. So just basing it around the years of experience seems like a bit of a red herring. And then when you tie it all back to his original point about this being a trend towards younger coaches, I mean, that kind of isn't really true either. To use the examples he used, Mike Holmgren was 44, so five years older than Lafleur. Uh, McCarthy was 43, four years older. It It's not that big of a difference. Either you can coach or you can't. And Mike Pettin, when he spoke to the media this week, kind of spoke at length about that. It it doesn't really matter. Age doesn't really matter all that much. Either you you can coach or you can't. We had this discussion or a variation. The the entire league had a variation of this discussion in kind of a weird way earlier this offseason because the the thinking was um, that it was weird that Vic Fangio hadn't gotten an opportunity to be an NFL head coach and he was something like 60 years old. Well, when in his career did he become this guy that was just a no brainer as a head coach? Because if you look back at his resume, I mean, he was doing the things similar things to what Sean McVeigh did at similar ages. He was a high level defensive assistant, he was uh, the right hand man for Dom Capers pretty much wherever Dom Capers went for a long time. In the early 90s, the mid-90s, into the early 2000s. I mean, shoot, this guy had all the qualifications that you needed at the same time, but he never got an opportunity. Sean McVeigh, though, gets an opportunity. Things break his way. It really doesn't have anything to do with age. You can do it or you can't, and you can see the guys who can do it because they keep getting jobs. Guys that can't coach quit getting jobs at a certain point. We're going to talk about a guy later who kept getting jobs for reasons that we don't really understand and Winston Moss, but he's probably the exception rather than the rule. Most guys who can coach in the NFL keep coaching in the NFL and get jobs wherever they go, even if they don't end up on successful teams all the time. I think Nathaniel Hackett's a good example of that. The teams he's been on haven't always been good, but people have a great opinion of him and he's never struggled for work the last 10, 15 years. Age is not something to get hung up on, and we really don't know what anybody's doing anyway. This is all just a crapshoot, and occasionally it works out, and hopefully it works out for the Packers. Let's talk linebackers for a second. We're going through our position-by-position review, and this is just a quick point to me that kind of jumped out as I was writing about the linebackers. Packers had a bit of a disappointing linebacker group this year. Their edge rushers were not super great. Their inside linebackers were not Super thrilling there either. But I think two of them in particular kind of point out some strengths and weaknesses of the Packers roster. And I'd like to talk about them real quickly here. The two are Blake Martinez and Antonio Morrison. Both interesting because they play a very similar position, but they play it very differently. Blake Martinez is everything you could ask Blake Martinez to be. He's good but he's also a little bit on the limited side. You know, he's been close to the league lead or right at the league lead in 2017 in terms of total tackles. He's a sign mature. He doesn't make a lot of mistakes, but also Blake Martinez doesn't make a lot of real splashy plays. He had five sacks in 2018, but most of those were late pressures, kind of pressures that anybody could have done. Anybody could have been in a position to do because they were quote-unquote schemed open. It's the offensive equivalent of kind of like running a screen pass. You better catch it because anybody who stands there and has two arms could probably do so. He brings very little to the table in terms of exceptional abilities, but he also doesn't take anything off. And it seems like the Packers have had a lot of guys kind of like this over the past four or five years. They're good to have, but you'd rather not build your team solely around these guys, and the Packers seemingly have tried to do that. Thinking back a couple of years at tight end, Richard Rodgers was a lot that way, even, though even more limited. He didn't like totally ruin your offense, but he didn't really add anything to it either. Blake Martinez is a guy who does everything that he's supposed to do and very little more. Jamal Williams, to use a current example, is kind of the Blake Martinez of the offense. He doesn't do anything spectacular. He also doesn't screw it up for you. You can do okay with those guys, but you don't want to have too many of them. A similar kind of inverse example is Antonio Morrison. He's very limited in what he can do well. He does very little on the football field. But what he does do well, he does absolutely as hard as he can, as fast as he can, all the time. He hits hard, he plays strong against the run, and he gives flat-out effort on every single play. And these are the guys who the Packers, I think, have needed for a while. Guys that play above their talent level. It's not just guys who are what they are. It's guys who are every bit of what they can be because they are giving maximum effort on every play. Bashad Breeland seems to be similar to this. You know, he's not the most athletic guy. He's no Jair Alexander. He's no Kevin King. He doesn't run a blazing 40 time. He doesn't have a tremendous vertical leap, but he knows what he's supposed to do. He plays hard, and uh, he gets a lot of results in that way. And I would love to see the guys, or the Packers, especially on the bottom end of the roster, end up with more guys like Antonio Morrison, and on the upper end of the roster have fewer guys like Blake Martinez. It's not a knock against Blake Martinez, I swear. I'm not trying to say that he's not a good player. He's He's a very, very excellent player, but... The Packers need more guys who can elevate their games and elevate people around them through effort or through just finding ways to execute and do the things that they do well at the highest possible level. Then they need guys who are just adequate and do what is put in front of them. Jamal Williams again, uh very very solid, never gets tackled for a loss, doesn't fumble the ball, but he also doesn't give you any sort of big plays really either. He, he does that very, very rarely. They need more of the the effort, the high effort, the high intensity guys, and less of just the guys that, you know, bring very little of the table, but also don't take anything off of it. Hopefully that makes sense. Kind of a tortured example there. Let's dive into our game-by-game game recap of 2018. This should go a little bit quicker because we are full-on into the narrative portion of the season. These games really don't matter for the Packers anymore because the big thing has really happened for them. In our last episode, we talked about when they fired Mike McCarthy. Before we get too far, let's, let's recap why we're doing this and how we're going to do it. Why do it? Well, trying to tease out the truth of the narrative in 2018. Um, sometimes you get a little bit misguided as you're going through things. I think this is a good example of where I personally was a little bit off base in 2018. I probably held on to the narrative of the Packers being able to turn things around longer than I should have. But that's something we've been able to explore a little bit more thoroughly in hindsight. It also helps us remember important things that we forgot. When did guys arrive on the roster? When did they head to injured reserve? And we've missed a couple of those in the past couple of weeks. Uh, By this point in the season, Raven Green is on injured reserve. Uh, They're really starting to shuffle things in the bottom end of the roster. Um, Their secondary is in shambles. The offensive line is a mess. It's important to remember and tease those things out a little bit. Thirdly, it helps us remember who did what and when. So how do we do all this? Well, we ask three questions. What led up to a game? What happened in a game? And how should we remember that game? And we have arrived at game number 13 when the Packers hosted the Falcons at Lambeau Field on December 9th of 2018. What led up to this game? Well, following Mike McCarthy's firing, Winston Moss also got fired. How? Well, on December 5th at 11.59 a.m., he tweeted, Never a good idea to tweet anything. But he also (laughs) tweeted something he shouldn't have. He said, direct quote, Ponder this, what championship teams have are great leadership? Period. It's not the offensive guru trend. It's not the safe trend. Find somebody that is going to hold number twelve and everybody in this building to a hashtag Lombardi standard, period. Hashtag losing sucks. Okay, 11:59 a.m. 9:24 p.m. Same day, he tweets, quote, the Packers have informed me that they're letting me go. Hashtag thanks Twitter. And he misspelled there in there as well. Joe Philbin says the firing wasn't related to the tweet you can believe that or not. I kind of don't. Even if it wasn't the sole reason, it can't have helped. Here's what he said, though. Quote, it's never one thing. Again, I think it's important, as I said to the team, we've got to be professional, accountable, respectful, and punctual. Those are the four things that we've got to do the next four weeks. And if we do all those things, we'll be in good shape. End quote. Here's a very substitute teachery quote by Joe Philbin. I thought he was a legit, legit candidate to be the next head coach of the Green Bay Packers. Maybe not like more than a 5% chance that he gets the job, but legit chance anyway. But this quote in hindsight kind of shows that he may have had that substitute teacher mentality. You know, figure, figure picture, excuse me, picture a substitute teacher that takes over in like march of a school year. They've got 3 months of the school year to go. They know the normal teacher is not going to come back. They've just got to get thing, this thing over the finish line. So they start, you know, saying a lot of platitudes. You know, it, it's almost the uh, you're, not my, you're not the real boss of me sort of thing. Uh, you say things we got to be like, we got to be professional, accountable, respectful, and punctual and stuff like that. We just got to, you know, show up and do our homework and, and, and get to the, the end of the season because they're trying to survive as much as the students are that seems to be in hindsight what joe philbin was going through also this week kendall donerson gets called up to the active roster from the practice squad he never played but he was there and we also entered what i called the route for chaos period here's what we said in the preview I think if you can't root for the Packers to win, rooting for chaos either in Green Bay or around the league is the second best option. Very few things are interesting when they go according to plan, but fortunately right now very few things about the Packers can be said to be going according to plan. The head coach is gone, the starting quarterback is playing weirdly, and the defense seems to go have to go to great lengths just to find enough healthy players to play every week. Even the Packers' long snapper is hurt right now. That's how weird and wild things are. Who's going to be snapping the balls for punts and field goals and extra points on Sunday? Who even knows? End quote. Yes, this was the Packers in week 14 of the 2018 season. But what happened in this game? Well, we got pretty close to chaos. At least on one side of the ball. And that side of the ball was actually the Falcons because in this game we had a true blowout. Probably the only true blowout of the 2018 Packers season for or against. The Packers absolutely hammered the Falcons in this one, to the point that it's hard to really draw anything substantive out of this game. This was 34-7 heading into the fourth fourth quarter, and all of the Packers' scores, offensive and defensive, came in the first 35 minutes of the game. They were done scoring by 10 minutes to go in the third quarter. This was kind of a farewell game for the 2018 Packers because we had a few high-profile last last in this one. Two in particular. First, Randall Cobb scored what could have been his last touchdown in Green Bay. Just a beautiful back shoulder throw to Cobb from Aaron Rodgers for one of his two passing touchdowns on the day. Clay Matthews also had what could be his last sack in Green Bay. Both Cobb and Matthews are free agents this offseason. Aaron Jones was great all around. He had 78 rushing yards, 28, 28 receiving yards, and scored a touchdown on the ground. Aaron Jones, or Aaron Rodgers, excuse me, was great, but didn't have to be. Uh, he was good, but not great, but he didn't have to be great. I mean, they were walloping them anyway. Equinymia St. Brown ended up with more snaps in this game than Marquez Valdez-Scantling. This, these snap totals got a lot closer down the stretch in this season. Um St. Brown always was fairly firmly behind MBS, but it got a lot closer down the stretch. Jimmy Graham continued what was kind of a downward, downward spiral over the last half of the season. His second worst output in a game where he played really the entire game um, of the season. He had 13 yards on two catches. But on the positive side, Bashad Breeland had a great game, which included an interception return for a touchdown. There's really not much else to mention in terms of play-by-play stuff in this game because it was just such a blowout. So how should we remember this game? If there's not much of consequence that happened during it, not much to mention in terms of play-by-play, a blowout that was essentially over by halftime, how do we remember it? Well, we shouldn't remember it as a game that showed that Mike McCarthy was the thing holding the Packers back. Tempting though that may be. And it is tempting because sometimes you just assume things are going to get better when you get rid of the guy that everybody thinks is the problem. But I think what this game is, is the dead cat bounce. That's an economics term that we've used before here. To spell it out plainly, we turn to Investopedia. Quote, a dead cat bounce is a temporary recovery from a prolonged decline that is followed by the continuation of the downtrend. End quote. Well, the Packers were definitely in a bit of a downward spiral. They had lost five of their six previous games. They had fired their head coach. Their record was at 4-7-1. That's going down in the NFL. But then on this day, they catch a bad team on a bad day, and they get a win that they probably really didn't deserve. And then the next week, they go right back to the way things were before. Game number 14 of the 2018 season is the last time the Packers played something that could be resembling a meaningful game. On December 16th, they traveled to Soldier Field to take on the Bears. But prior to that, a couple important things happened. One in particular. Packers moved Byron Bell to injured reserve and signed Nico Siragusa to replace him. The offensive line is just a mess at this point in the season. Jason Spriggs ends up up playing... Uh, a lot at right tackle. Right guard is Justin McRae. Lane Taylor is a little bit beat up at left guard. Uh, there's a lot of things shuffling around on that side of the line too. We also predicted leading up to the Bears game that Aaron Rodgers would throw an interception. He was at a significant significant record setting even. Um, interception free streak, but we predicted that would come to an end against the Bears and ultimately it did. What actually happened in this game, though? Well, it was surprisingly even most of the way through. The Packers and Bears traded punts to start, but then the Bears drove down and scored on their second drive to take a 7 to nothing lead. On the Packers' second drive, Aaron Jones got hurt on a two-yard run, and he never returned to this game or any o- other. His season was over at this point. The Packers, though, did continue to play some solid defense. They scored to make it 7-3 to shortly into the second quarter. Shortly before halftime, the, pa- the Bears scored again to make it 14-3 with about 30 seconds to go. The Packers couldn't get it in, in the end zone or kick a field goal after that. But just after halftime, the Packers showed their last real signs of life against a competitive team in 2018. They scored a field goal on their first drive to make it 14-6, then stopped the Bears when they tried a fake punt on their first drive of the second half. Vidal Brown was the one who made the stop claimed on waivers from Oakland earlier in December. The Packers then went down and scored on a 10-yard run by Jamal Williams, played reasonably well in this game, then they converted the two-point conversion to tie it up at 14. But that's as good as it gets for the Packers. Because even though the Bears fumbled on their next drive, the Packers couldn't respond. They went three and out. The Bears went down then and scored of touchdown of their own to make it twenty one to fourteen. On their next drive, the Packers went three and out. And a big punt return set up the Bears with another field goal, making it twenty four to fourteen. On their last real competitive drive, the Packers advanced to the Bears' nine yard line. But on a bad throw from Aaron Rodgers, Jimmy Graham has uh, the ball go off his hands and into the hands of a Bears defender. The ball is picked off in the end zone. Chicago runs down what's most of what's left of the clock. And even though the Packers get the ball back and are able to kick a field goal to make it 24-17, the game is effectively over with the interception. So how do we remember this game? Well, this is another 2018 in a nutshell type game. The Packers fell apart down the stretch. There was an obvious talent disparity, both due to the quality of players on Chicago and the injuries in Green Bay. There was issues with execution. The Bears tried as hard as they could to give the game away, but the Packers just wouldn't let them do that. And kind of this was the end of meaningful games for the Packers in 2018. We really entered tanking season next, and even though the Packers didn't really tank... They were out of any meaningful playoff considerations and it would have been a huge long shot even if, they had, even if they had beaten the Bears. Satisfying though it would have been to beat Chicago, they couldn't do it. And even if they had been completely healthy, it would have been close as we saw at the start of the year. So to conclude next time, As we take our our look through the 2018 season, we will explore the deepest depths of the Packers' 2018 season, the games that didn't matter at all, weeks 16 and 17 of 2018. But there are still some highlights to be found. You just have to look pretty hard. While I've got you here, I want to return to a segment that we did last week, our Valentine's Day, quote unquote, episode. What do we talked about what we loved about the Packers, I opened it up to anybody who wanted to throw some additional thoughts out there, and I've got a a great message here that I'm going to read part of from a listener by the name of Ricard in Sweden. We communicate regularly via via the Packers' Facebook page, and you never hesitate to drop us a, a message there if you would like to do the same, but he shared a great story uh, some great thoughts about why he enjoys being a Packers fan, what he loves about the packers here's some of what he said. I have his p- permission to share this message, uh, provided we edit it slightly just for length. Uh, he had some some lengthy thoughts in here um, he well i'll just read it to you here's what he said. I live in the capital of Sweden, Stockholm, a city with more than a million inhabitants. I fell in love with the small town feeling that you get with and from Green Bay, and that was the reason I picked the Packers in the mid-80s. I had to look it up on the map. I figured Green Bay was located on the west coast, somewhere between San Diego and Portland. I've visited Green Bay multiple times since then, to eight games at Lambeau Field and six road games. Every time I go back, the warm, loving feeling for the franchise, the small town of Green Bay, the warm and kind people living there welcoming me every t- single time I go there. Where I am now Green Bay feels like my second home, my second family, and I love that feeling. For me, it brings a whole new meaning to my life, to know I will go there once or twice a year. This past September, I brought a new Swedish Packers friend with me, and to see the joy and happiness in his eyes, when he got to experience what I love the most, was amazing. I am so glad he chose to share that message, because there's so much in there, and I... I think this is a common thread through all of the messages I've received about why we love the Packers. There's something that rings true for me in there too. Just kind of that second family feeling, the small town feel. Even though all these stories are different, they're all kind of the same too. And I think that is kind of in a nutshell what being a part of this whole thing really is. And I think that's pretty cool. So thank you all of you who wrote in. And again, I just want to encourage you, whether it's on Facebook or on Twitter or through our contact page at thepowersweep.com. Don't ever hesitate to write in. You can, of course, contact us in all of those locations. You can also support us if you would be so kind on patreoncom thepowersweep. One dollar per month helps support the show here and everything that we do via the Power Sweep. Uh, if you would like to buy a fine t-shirt or sweatshirt, click the shop link at thepowersweave.com. That'll take you to our Teespring store where you can pick out some very excellent stuff. And as always, the freest and easiest way to support this is to leave us a review on iTunes. No pressure, but it does help more people find the show. As always, like I've said, we do love to hear from you. Any feedback you give us helps us make this entire operation better and helps all of us become Smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, Smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue Fifty Eight.